Hey everyone, I hope you're all staying safe and taking care of those around you. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds. As always, it's Mike Wong. It's becoming clear that the coronavirus pandemic is not just a deeply scientific issue, but also a pivotal moment in history. And so, today, we are going to talk to my favorite historian, Daesun Oka. Daesun and I have been friends ever since we were children, bonding over what else but Star Trek. And ever since our academic paths have diverged, I've found it ever more fascinating to talk to him, because every time we chat, we have more and more to teach each other. Daesun has made several guest appearances on this show, speaking about ideas such as teleology, colonialism, and clandestine organizations as they relate to Star Trek. This time, we're going to talk about memorials and memorialization, which is one of Daesun's specialities as a historian. He's studied memorials built in our home state of California that remember the so-called comfort woman, a euphemism for sex slaves, of the Imperial Japanese Army before and during World War II. But why are these memorials being built in California, some 70 years after the conclusion of the war? I'll let Daesun explain that, as well as the connection to the strange alien memorial that the starship Voyager encountered in the Delta Quadrant, and how the coronavirus will be remembered. So, set a course for home. Welcome back to the show, Daesun. I'm so happy that you're here. Yeah, me too. It's pretty exciting, and I'm glad we can do this even with Corona happening. Yeah. Today, we are going to do something that we've been thinking about for a long time, and I had actually planned to visit our hometown and spend some time with you in person, but then, of course, the coronavirus happened, yeah. and so we're doing this over the magic of subspace communications. That is perfect. Yes. Yeah, no, I just want to say thank you. Like, I'm pretty excited to, like, be on the show again. And, you know, like you said, it's great that we can do this online. So we're going to be using the Star Trek Voyager episode that is titled Memorial Mm -hmm. as a launch pad to talk about memorials. (laughs) So um, this is actually one of your specialties as a historian. And as I'm sure we'll learn very soon, you've actually published a journal article about a specific memorial in the Bay Area. But let's start with the basics. Can you tell me what the purpose of a memorial is? Why are they built? And what do they do? So I think what's special about a memorial is it's kind of like a bridge between the history and the present. And so it kind of facilitates the relationship between the people who are living and then something that happened in the past. So a memorial is important in that it's, it actually kind of speaks to the people who are still alive. And so it is a sort of reminder in the form of like a physical thing that says, okay, like something happened in the past, but I'm not speaking to the past, I'm speaking to you who the reader, the present society, and they're calling on society to remember and take action. Interesting. So that's a great perspective, one that I hadn't thought about before. 
Um, because when I think of a memorial, I think of something as a physical representation of the past. And it's sort of, my thought process just ends there. But you as a historian are very acutely aware that the story doesn't end there. It's not just about the past. It was built in a time that is not the past for people who are living in the present and the future as well, not for the people whom it's memorializing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the whole point of memorials. It's like, it's speaking to you and the responsibility becomes placed on you. So that means that embedded in this structure is not just the events of the past and the memories of the past, but also some kind of context from the present? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, first of all, the way that the past is interpreted is through the filters of current values and like the values and assumptions that you hold in the present. And so what memorials do is that they interpret whatever happened in the past to make it readable or understandable according to the values of whoever is reading it. So we've visited several memorials together. I remember seeing many memorials on our eighth grade field trip. Our American history class went to Washington, D.C. for a week over spring break. And we saw a lot of famous memorials, mostly celebrating the lives of past American presidents. More recently, when you visited me in L.A., the week that I defended my Ph.D. thesis, you showed me two much more obscure memorials, the first was the Armenian Genocide Memorial in Montebello, and the second was the Korean Comfort Woman Memorial in Glendale. Um, these two monuments were basically right in my backyard as somebody who had been living in the Los Angeles area. But throughout all of grad school, I had no idea that they even existed, that they were even there. Um, uh, why, why do you think certain memorials are less well-known? And do you think that there are some really important memorials out there that people should be more aware of? Yeah, so first of all, I think when we think of memorials that are well-known, like the memorials in Washington, D.C., a lot of these memorials try to piece together a story. And it's the story of the nation-state. And so when we think about the Founding Fathers or historical events relating to the Civil War, for example, when we go to Washington, D.C. and Virginia, we see lots of memorials bringing those historical events, tying them together, and then portraying them as somehow leading up to the creation of the United States or the preservation of the United States. And so this has a lot of legitimacy because the U.S. nation state is still like the legitimate institution that is pervasive throughout the United States. And so what this does is that you can have a memorial in Virginia and Washington, D.C. about random people that we have no connection to, but people in California, Alaska, Hawaii, and everywhere else in the United States is able to look at that and say, we belong to a family. Mm. So basically what you're saying is that it's um, sort of like narrative building. It's, it is, there's this memorial out there, you know, when I, when I think of those memorials in Washington, D.C., which I haven't visited in such a long time, but when I think of them, I almost feel like a part of them belongs to me, right? Yes, yeah. uh, and, and I guess that's because uh, they've accomplished their purpose of narrative yeah. building for what it means to be American, that there were right. these people, and even though I have no relation to George Washington or FDR or Abraham Lincoln, um, because 
I buy into the story of what it means to be an American, these memorials mean something to me. Is that, is that what you're trying to say? Exactly, exactly. So like we can go in eighth grade to never have been to Washington DC before. We can go to these sites and these sites and memorials invite us as eighth graders to participate in the American project and to belong in the American project. We've never been to Washington DC before that. We don't know these people. We're not direct descendants of these people. And we live in a land where, while the founding fathers were alive, California was like not even on their radar. Probably. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, it was just not a part. It was not a part of the U.S. And they probably didn't even think that it would be a part of the U.S. But nonetheless, we have this attachment to not the past of California's past, which is like Spanish Empire, but we have an attachment to the United States. So it's like interesting, like when we think about California history and where we're at in California, we think that we are predecessors of the United States when we're also just as much predecessors to the Spanish empire too. So that's an interesting fact, like when Californians, we study our own history and we look at the 1700s and 1800s, oftentimes we know more about what happened in the East Coast than what, we, what happened here during the time of the Spanish empire. That's so true, actually. Even, even though we physically live here, but that's not the point. Just because we physically live here, that doesn't mean we're psychically connected to the nation state that happened in the East Coast. So you're saying basically that the, the story, the American myth has sort of overridden the uh, geography, right? Like mm-hmm. you could approach educating young people in California in terms of their history in a completely different way, which is to say, what is the history of this patch of land that you currently live on? You know, and then you would, you would learn a completely different history than what was the history of the nation that you live in through time. Exactly. Which did not yeah. include California. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, it's, it's not about geography. It's ideology and memory. And it's interesting like how we can claim memory to a nation state where this nation state didn't even exist here on this land. So I guess that explains why these um, memorials in DC are so well known because they are essentially tools for crafting Americanness. Yeah, yeah. Can you speak to some of the lesser known memorials So like like I said, uh, these memorials are tools and these tools allow us to make connection to other people, other events that have, maybe you don't think that they have anything to do with us. And again, this like traverses geography. You don't have to be in the same place to understand and have some sort of relation or identity to what happened in another place because something else justifies your connection to a place that happened elsewhere. For example, for in the instance of memorials in Washington, D.C., we can claim that as our own because we belong in the American nation state, even though like we're Californians. So likewise, with the memorials that I showed you, and in particular the one about the comfort woman, these comfort women, as far as we know, they didn't have any connection to California, and they were victims of something that happened in East Asia. So then the question is like, how do we relate? to this historical incident, even though it's not connected to California. The answer to how we relate to memorials in Washington, D.C. is through the American nation state. 
Whereas how we relate to what happened to the comfort woman in East Asia can go on the backs of multiple values and meanings. For example, the meanings of human rights or the meanings of connection to our ancestral homeland. So for example, we can look at the memorial about the comfort woman and say, oh, I care about this because it's an issue of human rights. And as someone who cares about human rights, like I should care about it. Or you can look at this memorial and say, okay, my parents lived through massacres and other human rights violations caused by the Japanese military. And therefore, I look at the comfort woman as something that is also as a part of the massacres and killings that happened to my family, even though they weren't comfortable with themselves. Or you can look at this memorial and say, oh, my family came from the places that the comfort woman came from. And instead of becoming the comfort woman, maybe my family and my grandmothers like escaped and like settled in the United States. So therefore I have a sort of stake in the comfort woman story. And your job as the historian is to essentially try to answer that puzzle, to try to understand why in the present day in California, there are memorials being built to these people who lived very far away at a completely different time. And yes, there, there were atrocities, but why should we try to bring that into the present? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So we know that we know this process pretty well about when it relates to memorials in Washington, D.C. It's a part of how we were educated as like U.S. citizens, like, okay, these memorials belong to us because we are a part of the American nation state. These memorials, anyone from Hawaii, California, Alaska, Arizona can visit Washington, D.C. and say, that is ours. And so likewise, I'm trying to say, okay, how do people come to memorials like the Comfort Woman Memorial and look at that and say, that is ours. And so, like what I said earlier, people are able to do that because they care about human rights or they care about what their families went through and think that their families are related to the comfort woman. Or they look at this and say, okay, like as someone whose community comes from genocide or trafficking, I look at these comfort women and say, like, even though they're not related to me, like I still, I still support this memorial because it supports larger value and larger meanings attached to the memorial or attached to these women. So you're looking at the processes by which we in the present can sort of own or attach ourselves to certain memorials. Yes, yes. And I think I want to emphasize it's a process. It's a process. And it's not immediately assumed. And I think that, that goes the same for the memorials in Washington, D.C. Like no one in the beginning had this idea of the United States nation state, but it was a process in which politicians, activists, community members, nation state builders, statesmen have to engage in, and then they build this memorial and say, okay, we won, so we're going to take whatever happened in the past and legitimize what we want and say that what we want in the present is like a continuity and it has a connection to the past. So you can say like, okay, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson probably never imagined a memorial about them to build this thing called the United States. But these memorials were actually built in the late 1800s, like after the Civil War. So far after the founding fathers lived their lives. So these memorials, like it's, it's not necessarily even what the subjects of the memorial want. Like these memorials don't really care about 
what, what George Washington said or what Abraham Lincoln said or what Thomas Jefferson said. <laughs> but it's so mostly what, what we say about them. What you're, what you're um, talking about really reminds me of Star Trek First Contact, where they go back in time and they meet Zephram Cochran, the inventor of warp drive. And at some point when they're trying to convince Zephram Cochran to actually take his flight that will get noticed by the Vulcans and initiate first contact, Geordi LaForge tells Zephram about the statue, I guess the memorial that one day there you know, will be. And, and Zephram Cochran's like, I don't want to be a statue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I remember that scene. So that, that sort of reminds me, yeah, like our founding fathers uh, probably never imagined themselves forever encased in marble stone. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, they, pro- they probably never envisioned even the concept of a nation state. At least not the way that, that, that we... Yeah, it is now, yeah. Right, yeah. But, you know, it has the power of us claiming that history. It unites people, 300 million people, mm-hmm unifying history and gives legitimacy to the institutions in Washington, D.C. So in this Star Trek Voyager episode called Memorial, an away team consisting of Commander Chakotay, Tom Paris, Harry Kim, and Neelix is affected by a memorial that essentially transmits memories into people's minds. Upon returning to Voyager, this away team, these four crew members, begin having visions of being a part of an armed conflict down on some alien planet's surface. And because these visions are so vivid, they start to suspect that they really were a part of this conflict during their away mission and then subsequently had their memories wiped away somehow. Captain Janeway has Voyager investigate what happened to see if her crew members actually did murder dozens of innocent lives. But when they retrace the away team's journey back to an M-class planet, the entire Voyager crew begins hallucinating. And what they discover is that on the surface of this planet, there is a memorial that is running out of battery that works by making people relive the memories of a 300-year-old atrocity so that nobody will ever forget. Now, Desun, setting aside your historian self for just one moment, from the perspective of just a Star Trek fan, what did you think of this episode? I actually really liked it. If Star Trek could have like, you know, Monster of the Week episodes, I think this is a good one. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, oh, it's like a one-off episode, but I think it's good because it just shows like how we can have conflict with the past. We can have conflict with the dead. And the actual only living people that we meet in this episode is the entire Voyager crew. But they're dealing with like something that, with like memories of people who have like died 300 years ago. This episode I think was trying to show that like even things that happened a long time ago still conflict us. It's obvious because like, you know, this memory is like stressing people out. But I think that's like kind of, kind of a metaphor for us in that, you know, the past stresses us out too. We feel guilty about the past and like we feel victimized about the past. So it still is very much relevant to those living today. 
So now let's wrap your historian self back in because okay, I can sure. feel it already creeping in. I, know, I, was like, <laughs> I can't help it. Um, so obviously we don't have any real life memorials that are able to so vividly transport you to another time or place. And the way that this memorial actually did it by sort of implanting memories in people and making them have visions against their will was kind of invasive. It was kind of like a traumatizing technique. Do you think it was an effective one? Oh yeah, I think so. I think so. I think so. Um, which makes me think like, if you purely put your feet in the other person's shoes, like, can you really like feel sympathetic towards them? And I think this episode kind of invites us to think like, oh, can we solve atrocities through empathy? And I don't know. Because I think empathy was like kind of like the, the thing that led them to action and the thing that, that like made them recharge the memorial. But then we have to ask ourselves, is empathy enough in the real world? I think this is a really good question and it didn't occur to me at all. But the, the way that this memorial worked was so vivid and traumatic that I don't think the crew ended up having very much empathy. I think their overriding emotion was more of disgust and like mm. shock and, 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 mm. and guilt and fear because yeah. of what they had to go through against their will. And maybe that's just a function of them being forced into it. Maybe if they had the choice to experience it, they would have had a different outcome. And so, yeah, that begs the question that, do you have to feel like guilt to get action done? Where this episode kind of just assumes, it makes this assumption that guilt is enough. At the end of the day, Voyager did the right thing. But then you also, you had this moment where if it wasn't for Janeway intervening, like Tom Paris and Harry Kim would have just left. They didn't want to deal with this memory. They didn't want to recharge the cells. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess you're referencing the end of the episode yeah. um, mm -hmm. in which essentially somebody who was not a part of the away mission, Captain Janeway, uh -huh. basically says, wait, this memorial is breaking down and I know it put you all through this very harrowing experience, but we need to preserve it. We need to mm -hmm. recharge it. And I guess we can skip to this question. It was going to be one, one of my last questions. But do you think that Janeway made the right decision? Um, so basically, after the crew discovers the truth of what's been happening to them, that they've not actually killed all of these people, that these were just memories implanted in them by this memorial, they are faced with a choice. Do they let the memorial drain out of its batteries because it's near the end of its life? Or do they refurbish the memorial and keep it going for another 300 years? Um, and Janeway is one of the few people who thinks that this memorial should be regenerated in a sense. She references other memorials that mean more to the people of the Federation. She says, The obelisk at Kittimer, the fields at Gettysburg, those were other people's memories too, but we don't honor them any less. The 82 colonists who died here, they deserve their memorial. Captain. We're not going to shut down the transmitter, is that clear? Is that clear? Are you suggesting we leave it intact? I'm suggesting that we repair it. Recharge the power cells. I want that monument to function properly for another 300 years. We'll place a warning buoy in orbit. Anyone who enters the system will know what to expect. Dismissed. 
What do you think about Janeway's decision to regenerate the memorial? I think it's legitimate. Like, I think she was on the right to do so. And, you know, it was convenient that she put a buoy up and, like, had a warning. I think that was, like, a convenient variable that legitimized her action. But even without that, like, I think she did the right thing. And I think her doing that shows that even people who never dealt with this history and memory can still take the action to preserve whatever happened. Like, you don't need to be the victim or the aggressor, the literal victims or the aggressors, to preserve this memory. You don't have to go through, like, what the people, like, the victims that are described in the memorial have gone through to support and keep their memory alive. This reminds me of what you were saying with both the memorials in Washington, D.C. and the memorials like the Comfort Woman Memorial, in that the memorials in D.C. were built by people who lived decades after the Founding Fathers, and the Comfort Woman Memorials in the United States are built by people who, you know, were not the Comfort Women and were not the people who abused the comfort women, um, but by a completely separate group of people who live in the present day here in California. Uh, and so you talked about that process of making that connection to a memorial and to feel feeling like you belong to a memorial and you outlined the different processes for the real life memorials. I was wondering if you would care to speculate about the process in Janeway's mind. What, what was the process in her mind that made her want to keep this memorial alive on this planet? That's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure, but just speculating what she was going through. She, again, you know, like you said, she related to memorials in her own society. That's probably like a point of empathy, whereas we have similar memorials in our society. So because of empathy and relating to these random aliens, Jamie was thinking, okay, I should probably support this memorial. And she's probably thinking about like times in her own society where atrocities were on the verge of being forgotten. And then she said, okay, this is something exactly the same thing is happening in this alien society. So that's, that's the kind of the other point I want to make. Like, was it because of empathy that Janeway was able to recharge the memorial? And I think that it also invites us to ask the same question too. It's like, I don't know the answer to this, but yes or no, like, is empathy enough to remember and respect atrocities? I also don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> so I will um, ask you another question. <laughs> so let's talk about the way that this memorial actually works. Um, so the inscription on the memorial says, Words alone cannot convey the suffering. Words alone cannot prevent what happened here from happening again. Beyond words lies experience. Beyond experience lies truth. Make this truth your own. Do you sometimes wish that static memorials like we have in real life could be as experiential and as interactive as the one in this Star Trek Voyager episode? Do you think that yeah. those memorials would operate better in the present day? Would they, would they get their point across better? I don't um, think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, like, do we need to, like, have other people because clearly we saw in like Tom Paris and Eric, like they, I mean, they like remember these memories as their own, but these memories weren't theirs to begin with. So it's kind of unfair to have them be burdened with this memory. And 
I don't think when this when the memorial says words are not enough, it's like, is that necessarily true though? I think can, words can be enough. It seems unfair to say, okay, you need to experience these atrocities to really understand and respect these atrocities. I think like the memorial in that episode was like an extreme way of like forcing people to remember these atrocities because it placed themselves in, in the actual situation. But we don't have that technology right now. So we have to rely on words. We can't assume that like accurate memory will somehow lead to memorialization and justice. We have to come to terms with the fact that memory is fragmented. It is incomplete. Histories will never get a full picture of that history. So just on that basis alone, it's, it's impossible to 100% recreate whatever happened. We don't have the full 100% picture. But if we have enough of it, if we have 70, 80% of the history, and we can infer from that enough of the history through education and words and politics, I think that accomplishes the memorial just as much. And it makes you wonder too, like you said, we'll never know 100% for sure what happened in the past. Actually, this reminds me of something that you told me um, a while ago when we were recounting our first days of friendship. And I like to tell the story that on the first day of kindergarten, we discovered that we both liked Star Trek. Like the way I remember it is that I asked you, do you like Star Trek? And you said, yes. And like from that point on, we were friends. Um, And then you said something that sort of shocked me, but I guess it could very well be true, which is that, you know, we don't actually know that that happened that way. The first day of kindergarten was so long ago. Do I remember anything else from this first day of kindergarten? No. Do I remember the second day of kindergarten or the third day? Absolutely not. Um, But we've been telling ourselves these stories for so long, and our parents have told us these stories of how we met for so long that maybe we just we just think that's the way that it happened, or I think yeah. that's the way that it happened. So like history, like you keep reminding me, is, is the act of memory making. And so, yeah, we will never know exactly what happened on a certain day of history, 100%. And we just have to live with that. And so it, it makes me wonder, even when you have a recreation as vivid as this, uh, in the Star Trek Voyager episode, where they're having flashbacks, where they feel like they're in this conflict, where they feel like they've been injured when they when they get shot. Maybe most of that is fiction too. And just because it feels more real doesn't mean that it's more accurate. Exactly. Like, I mean, they received fragmented memories in the first place. So they felt very real, but they still didn't know exactly their own names or who the victims were or like the history or politics of whatever they were enduring. But it felt very real to them. Just because you don't have a completely, like the entire full picture, that doesn't mean it has the same emotional effect on you. So we're entering a brand new age of technology. We have things like films and the internet and virtual reality is becoming more and more of an everyday thing or augmented reality in addition to that. Can you imagine a memorial built in the not too distant future that takes on a very different form than memorials that are built you know, as, as statues or monuments or buildings. A memorial that basically approximates this memorial from Star Trek. Like instead of building something, you actually create 
a virtual reality program, a holodeck of sorts that presents you with images and sensations yeah. of the past. I hope so. And I think the promise of that is like that technology allows us to immerse ourselves in what happened, but also kind of keep that kind of boundary and distance between observer and observed. And we still know that we are someone else observing something else. But keeping in respect to that distinction, we're able to still take action on our own. The problem with the memorial malfunction in Voyager was that the characters weren't able to establish the distinction between observer and observed. They thought they were the actual historical events that happened. But the whole point of the memorial was that you had to receive the memory, but not as your own, as some stranger's memory, and just say, okay, this is what happened. We remember what happened, but we didn't do it. And that kind of distinction and that separation, I think, is necessary for memorials to be effective. Interesting. And we see that in the Voyager episode. Um, as we've noted before, the memorial wasn't actually super effective on Tom Paris and Harry Kim, who wanted to shut it down after experiencing those memories. Because, like you said, they couldn't distinguish between the observer and the observed. So can you say a little bit more about why that distinguishing is necessary? Is it simply that you don't want to you know, mistake yourself for somebody who committed an atrocity or somebody who suffered? What is, what is the reason why that distinguishment between observer and observed is so critical to the function of a memorial? Well, first of all, I think the episode was also a good way of warning us that anyone is capable of kind of cover up. And I think that is shown through Harry Kim's and Tom Paris's like reaction to this memorial. They thought they actually did it and their instinct was to cover it up. So I think that kind of indirectly this episode was a warning. It's like, okay, anyone's capable of cover-ups, even in our most like favorite characters. And second of all, that distinction is important because the observer is working with the values and institutions of the present. The whole point of the memorial is like, it's not for the people who died or passed away, it's for the people who live in the present and then using what they have in the present to make sure that this atrocity never happens or that we like better the world. So to answer your question, the observer and the observed distinction is important because there are certain institutions and values that the observer lives within, needs to know that they belong to in order to like change their respective present and their respective society. So the atrocity that the Voyager away team is reliving is basically that of a forced relocation. Mm -hmm. um, so that the crew members relive the events from the perspective of military personnel sent to mm -hmm. temporarily evacuate a group of colonists from their homes. Mm -hmm. And these military personnel anticipate that some of the colonists would resist this forced relocation. So they are basically armed to the brim. And when the shooting starts, and it's not quite clear who fired the first shot, but plenty of shots were fired in the end, mass mayhem ensues. And when everything is over, 82 colonists have been killed. And this military leader orders all of the witnesses to be killed and all of the bodies to be vaporized. Like you said, this was a big cover up. This person is trying to forget this history or make history forget that this thing happened. And 
we can talk about the, the cover-up aspect a little bit more. And we should also talk about this aspect of forced relocation, because I think forced relocation has resulted in some very horrific acts throughout human history. And so I was wondering if you'd like to speak to the writer's choice of centering the atrocity around a mass relocation effort. I think what's interesting is like in the beginning of like them starting to remember this history, like the people who were about to relocate the colonists say, oh, they're not going to resist. They're going to like comply and they're going to go with it. I think them remembering that fact has kind of like happened in relocation histories like everywhere in like throughout history. But like they'll agree to it, like they'll participate in it. And so I think that's how the whole like relocation aspect, instead of saying, oh, we're going to kill you, like no one will agree to be killed. But then it's easier to say, okay, you know what, they agreed to relocate. And so I think that's like kind of showing that it's like relocation, displacement is like a baby step to something larger, like genocide or like 80 people getting killed. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't immediately go to, okay, we're going to forcibly relocate these people because that doesn't soothe your own conscience. But it does kind of legitimize and soothe your own conscience by saying, oh, these people like volunteered anyway, like they were supposed to, or like they were the ones that resisted and like we were on the right side of history. So I think that choosing relocation as the tragedy is like a good, it was the episode's way of saying, okay, every tragedy begins with baby steps. And like this baby step is like a simple relocation or like the simple idea that both parties agree to it. This is again like narrative building justifying Mm. any project, any relocation, any movement of people, or any killing of people. It always begins with something smaller, like they weren't supposed to be there, but they agreed to move anyways. So it wasn't really that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Relocation is the episode's way of saying, okay, it started off small, but then it ended up becoming a massacre. Yeah, that's really good insight. Um, I guess let's talk about empathy a little bit more because it's come up several times during our conversation. This idea is empathy enough. And I know you said that you don't really have the answer to that. And then I don't really know if empathy is enough, but I remember this very tender moment when Neelix is feeling, when Neelix is basically suffering from the trauma of having relived these events in his mind and seven of nine of all people (laughs) gets to comfort him. Your favorites, Talaxian stew and Terra nut souffle. The souffle has collapsed slightly, but its nutritional content is intact. Thank you. It looks delicious. Seven, when you were a Borg, you were involved in some unpleasant activities. I helped to assimilate millions. I don't mean to be insensitive, but do you ever feel shame about what you did? Frequently. How do you manage to keep going? Knowing that you've done such horrible things. I have no choice. And, you know, Seven of Nine is not necessarily the, uh, I guess, she's no counselor Troy, let's put it that way, <laughs> in terms of, you know, emotional support of people. Yeah. But, um, but she says this line. Guilt is irrelevant. On the contrary. My feelings of remorse help me remember what I did and prevent me from taking similar actions in the future. Guilt can be a difficult but useful emotion. 
guilt can be a difficult but useful emotion. And so I feel like a lot of times when memorials are being built, there's some kind of guilt associated with it, right? Because usually it's a very tragic event that the thing is memorializing. Uh, not always, but in many cases. What do you think of the role of guilt? Now, that's probably trying to speak to the people in the present, right? The people that the memorial is built for. How does that guilt like sort of dance with the idea of empathy? Guilt is like a cognitive dissonance emotion of like the idea of like justice and fairness being met with a complete contradiction. And so people like for instance, like Seven of Nine or Jane Way or anyone viewing any other memorial would feel guilty and said, okay, I can't believe that my government did this or I can't believe I did this because I don't expect myself to do this or I don't expect my government to do this. So that kind of guilt, it's good in the sense that it's, you're giving yourself like self, enough self-respect to put yourself at a certain standard. If there's a certain standard of human rights or there's certain standards of respecting other people that I think should be met, but hasn't been met yet. And if it hasn't been met, then the concluding emotion is guilt. And so I think guilt, it's like a sort of like self-respect. It's like, okay, like I can do better. First of all, so I think it's useful in that guilt grounds yourself in certain values, in certain positive values that have been overlooked and trampled on. Yeah, it definitely is useful in, in, in spurring you to action, right? To making you not repeat certain mistakes. After you make a mistake, you feel guilty, and that incentivizes you not to make that mistake again because you don't want to feel guilty mm-hmm. anymore. And I guess something interesting about this memorial in Star Trek was that it made people in the present feel guilty for something that happened in the past by other people. And like when I go to a memorial in real life about something terrible that happened in the past that other humans have done to yet other humans, I don't necessarily feel guilty as a human. Do you know what I mean? Like I might feel sad or I might feel touched or I might feel appalled that this thing happened in history and that I'm being reminded of it by this memorial, but I don't necessarily feel guilty because I didn't do those actions. Yet this memorial in Star Trek, it takes a different approach. It doesn't just remind you of the past. It actually puts you in the past and does yeah. make you feel guilty for that. So what do you think about that dichotomy where, where yeah. in the present, you know, I go to these comfort with memorials and I feel sad and, and it helps me realize that these things happened in the past and therefore we should work to make sure that we don't do them again. But I think the memorial in Star Trek just takes it to a whole new level. Yeah, totally. And I think that memorial was a way of showing that you could have done that. You could have done that horrible thing. Ah, yes. Because it's interesting, like, I'm sure that our characters in the episode, like, after they left the planet, they could have just realized, oh, it was, like, never me. But then again, like, I'm sure they logically know that, but they struggle to actually believe that. And it took them a while to, like, figure out, like, what they actually want to do with But even though these memories weren't, these actual memories weren't theirs, they still felt very guilty about it because they probably thought I could have just done the exact same thing. Like Harry Kim, Tom Paris could have done that. I think that's what's driving their guilt. So I want to circle back now to one of my previous questions where I asked you, do you think that static memorials should be more experiential and, and interactive? And you said they don't necessarily need to be because words can convey 
the past, perhaps just as effectively or accurately as an experience. But now that we've hit upon this point of guilt, you know, an experience can make you feel guilty, whereas words may not be able to do so. I think memorials, they're actually more experiential Mm. than you think. For example, memorials, if you look at them, the way they're designed, the art that goes into memorials, a lot of them is like actually experiential. Share with me more because maybe I, I just wasn't, so for my, example, mind, my soul was not open to If it. you go to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., I think we've been there. And the way the memorial is designed is it's like a list of the names of war dead. And it's like recessed within the ground. So there's like a feeling of also like being with the dead underground. And so it's like wow. a sort of mourning. Contrast that to the Abraham Lincoln Memorial where you walk up these grand staircases and you enter a huge neoclassical building with like huge space within and a giant statue of Abraham Lincoln. That process in itself is an experiential process. You're witnessing and you're living through the greatness of Abraham Lincoln who saved the United States and that he is overlooking and he is facing the U.S. Capitol across the National Mall. Like that in itself is experiential. That is so great. You just blew my mind there. You're absolutely right that the memorials, just by being a physical presence that you must walk into or down to or up to, that does convey an experience and that does convey some kind of emotion. Yeah. Um, And wow. So yeah, I would actually think that memorials are in fact very experiential. I guess not exactly in the same way as the memorial in Star Trek, but you're totally right that memorials do give you something to actually interact with. You just may not be aware of it as much as if, you know, you were transported back in time to the Vietnam War, but you are still interacting with it. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the Vietnam War Memorial. It's like you're under with the dead. Also, if you go to the African-American History and Culture Museum in the Smithsonian, you begin the museum by going underground. And then the way that you go through the museum is you start in the second or third floor of the underground and you go back up to the surface. And the basement level is the story of slavery, oppression, subjugation, and this is like rising up towards culture and freedom. So that's how the museum is designed. And anyone who's like walks through that path, it's like, it's able to feel the teleology of liberation that this museum is trying to portray. Wow. Whereas the memorial in San Francisco, you go to the statue and it's like three girls on a pedestal. They're holding each other's hands and facing back to back. And then five feet away is like the grandma that's looking upon them. And so that evokes emotion too. It evokes like emotions of like solidarity and like generational support, like a grandma that is supporting or that is looking upon herself. Like, because the three girls represent the conformant at their age. And so it's like these three girls who are in solidarity with each other are being supported by a grandma who's being supported by their future selves, which is like a grandma. This is amazing. This is so great. I love that you're here to explain this to me and to show me the meaning behind all of these design choices. And I think that this leads very perfectly into my final question. I hope that our listeners don't think it's too soon of me to ask this, but right now we're going through a very defining moment in our civilization's 
history. I have complete faith that the COVID-19 crisis will end one day, but before that day comes, we will see hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of deaths. And so, Deson, I wanted to ask you if somebody, maybe the UN or something like that, put you in charge of creating a memorial for the coronavirus pandemic, what would it be like? Wow, that's a good question. I think like throughout the world, what we all experienced, that's like no different from like from nation state to another nation state. It's like the people who worked, like the laborers, I'm talking like specifically like nurses and people in healthcare, people who work in essential businesses, like have to go through to like keep society running. I think like what's unique about the coronavirus is that it's not nation state specific, but it's global. And if we think about this as global, like, okay, so what do we all have in common? I think what we have all have in common is like essential workers and essential labor. I think that is like probably like one thing that this memorial could talk about. Other than that, I'm not sure. Um, but I think the question is like, what do we want to remember from this? And I think the history of labor is always important to remember. Absolutely. But when this virus is going to end, there's going to be like a clamor or even just like right now, there's like people who are, who are in the process of framing how the coronavirus like justifies their political project or their point of view. What I'm trying to say is that in the coming years, there's going to be like sort of memory battle or like memory conflict in saying who has legitimate stake and ownership of the coronavirus? Like who has a legitimate stake to like wield the narrative of how the coronavirus is going to be remembered? That's also an invitation to join in this battle or this competition to like take and like wield the coronavirus memory to like whatever political projects that we want to use it for. Like we see right now, like nation states are using the coronavirus to either lay blame on another nation state or to justify any policies that are in place already. Like for instance, like, okay, is the coronavirus going to legitimize Medicare for all? Or is this going to legitimize private health insurance? And so like, we just have to know how we're going to utilize coronavirus for our own political projects. Right. That totally makes sense. Something that we will need to think a lot about in the future is in what ways should the tail of the coronavirus be used? Exactly, exactly. The tail. In another way of putting it, it's like the coronavirus is always going to be weaponized. It doesn't matter by who. It's going to be weaponized. And the challenge to us is like, we also have to learn how to weaponize it too. Right. Everyone does. And I think it's so great that you, in this hypothetical scenario where you're the creator of a memorial, are essentially going to weaponize the coronavirus to acknowledge these heroes that are pervasive in every society on earth, the essential workers, the laborers. And I think that's so important and that's so great. Yeah, because I think the kind of consistent erasure in all of human history is like the people who operate the machineries of society. So like what I mean is like people who run the hospitals, people who run the factories, people who like run the economy, they're in general the ones who are forgotten. I'm very curious to know how coronavirus would kind of shine light on people whose labor is like not being seen. Yeah, I think the coronavirus is telling us that we are so interconnected and we share so much more in common than 
really separates us. And maybe this is yet another way that it will continue to do so in the future. Yeah. Jason, uh, I, I just want to thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds, for blowing my mind repeatedly, and for teaching me about the important, sensitive, and often somber topic of memorials. I don't think that I will ever walk up to a memorial the same way again after this conversation. I think I will be more open to experiencing these memorials that I, that I used to call static memorials uh, in contrast to this Voyager memorial, but yeah. I realize now that they are experiential. And I don't think I'll ever see the coronavirus the same way again either. You know, it's not just a biological entity that is making people sick and killing people across the world, but it is also a phenomenon within history that will get utilized for political and societal and, and, and narrative building <laughs> means and wielded, like we said, as a weapon. And so yeah. I, will, I will be aware of that now. My mind has been expanded exactly, to yeah. see the coronavirus that way. And it's all thanks to you. So Desen, thank you again so much. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing on board. And I think that's, I think you just like put a spot on. Nothing is like static. Everything's experiential. Everything is kind of a battle or everything is at stake. And that includes like coronavirus. There's always going to be people who will use coronavirus. That's just the fact of it. There's no way around it. And so like that calls on us to be like, okay, we have to join in the game. We have to join the battle and say like, okay, we're going to use coronavirus, our political projects. In some, I think I'm trying to say that everything is a political project. It's just like who wins. A great and thought-provoking note to end on. Take care and stay safe. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I know this was hardest on the four of you. But if you hadn't stopped at this planet, all the people who died here would have been forgotten. And if they could, I know they'd thank you. Janeway to Voyager. Stand by to initiate power transfer. Five to beam up. That was historian Desonoka on memorials and memorialization. You know, when I was a kid taking history classes in school, I thought that history was just a bunch of facts. Things happened, they're set in stone, unchanging, forever. But Desun has taught me to see history as a process. It's up to us to choose how we remember things and to decide why certain events can still mean so much to present people in a time and a place far removed from those events in history. This act of memory-making is an invitation for us to use the power of history to change the world for the better. It's a never-ending project that we can all contribute to, how will you write the next chapter? 
On the next Strange New Worlds, we'll be returning to the science of Star Trek Picard's first season with astrophysicist Andy Howell. I hope you'll join us. Till then, see you out there.